instruction for this one. Okay, so I'm going to give you an announcement about an announcement. So you will want to be here next week. Okay, I'm not, the type of announcement that I'm going to give you next week, it's better done in person. It's not bad, don't worry, it's very, very good, but I'm going to keep you in suspense just for one more week and tell you, you need to make plans to be here next week because I'm going to tell you the biggest announcement that we've had since we launched the church uh, nearly two years ago. So quite excited about it. You know, church, church life is like a book and the pages turn. And uh, we're about to turn a very, very significant page as we move to our, our second year of existence here. Uh, so you'll want to be here next Saturday morning as I, as I unveil the whole thing to you. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Those of you who, seeing as we're in a Bible, you know, we're talking about reading the Bible, uh, go, go take a look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Okay, that's my clue for you for the week. And if you've, if you, oh, a number of you are looking, okay, this is interesting. So, so look at that verse, uh, in particular, in the King James Version. You say, what's a King James Version? Figure it out, okay? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5, that's your clue for the week. And I will flock note you. So those of you who are on the system, which is most of you, I think, I will flock note. I will throw out clues. I will do all those kinds of things. And this coming Saturday morning, which will be the first Saturday of June, uh, boy, I am so excited. I'm just about to tell you, but I just won't do it. I'm going to wait one more week, okay, to tell you. So you'll want to be here next week. You say, I can't be, I can't be, I can't be. Am I going to miss it? Well, no, because in the subsequent weeks following, I'll have to keep talking about it and talking about it. It's such a big thing that I'm going to have to keep talking about it. Are you in suspense already? Yeah, well, I hope so. Okay, so you want to be here next week, same time, same channel, uh, and all of that. All right, uh, let, me, let me pray for you, and you can, you can give in the offering in person, as we say, uh, remember, for those of you who are new, we've got the, the gizmo in the corridor, the square. You can give online. A number of you do that. Uh, I've received some very encouraging reports from our district, from all the online giving that happens in this church. So that's a great way to do it, especially if you're going away for the summer. God, we thank you today that we get to be part of your church. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you, have, you have placed us into the body. And uh, Lord, you... You, when you do that to someone, you, you just transform our lives. And we thank you that by your grace, uh, just about every one of us in this room can say with, with assurance, with conviction, uh, that we're part of the body of Christ. Uh, but even if we can't, uh, by the end of this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be able to say that. It's such a privilege uh, to be able to call on you as God and Savior and King and Master and Lord and and uh, Lord, so we give to you today out of grateful hearts, we pray you would use it for the extension of your kingdom in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in the number three of this series called Misinterpret Our Biggest Bible Blunders. So if those of you who haven't been here, you see the, this man here and he's blindfolded He's got a sort of a smile on his face. He's all dressed up nice in his suit. 
And, uh, but if you look closely at what he's doing, it's kind of, kind of strange. He's got his fingers crossed. He's reading the Bible, but with his eyes blindfolded. He's got his Bible upside down, actually, and he just points his little finger to it and probably hoping, praying, I'm not sure what, that he finds something good. Uh, one would assume he'll take his blindfold off and, uh, and start reading whatever he finds. And so we've been talking about these Bible blunders that we make when we approach the Bible and try and read it and try to see if it makes a difference in our lives. We feel like we should be reading the Bible more, and so we try to do that. Uh, but when we do that, we, we sometimes make a number of mistakes which can lead us into all kinds of confusion. So in the first week, we talked about nine ways to misinterpret the Bible. You can look that up on our website and listen to that message. And then in the second week, we looked at a passage of Scripture. Do you remember what it was last week? We skipped for Mother's Day, but then we looked at one last week. Any of you remember where it was? Oh, Wow. I do remember. Sometimes I don't remember what I preach, but it uh, starts with M. Matthew, Matthew 7. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, or you too will be judged. So we talked about that last week, which they say, the people who write books on this subject, uh, that that is the most misinterpreted passage uh, in all of Scripture. So um, I'm going to give you another one today, but before I do, remember those of you who are, who are challenged by this whole idea of, hey, I've got to get back into the Bible, I've got to get back into the Bible with my family, uh, with my kids, the, on the screen, the, those two uh, uh, websites, really one, but one's a, a kid's version uh, that's the best, best application that you can use. Everybody's on their phones. The kids are on their phones. Adults are on their phones. Why don't you just read the Bible on your phone? At least you'd be reading it. And, and with this app, you can even listen to it. Like if you just don't like reading, uh, it's, it's not a sin to not read the Bible. Uh, it's a sin to have no exposure to it whatsoever, never, never pick it up and never, I, I would be prepared to say that that's a sin. It's God's word to us and we have, we have all these ways of listening to it, reading it, we'll do so. Uh, maybe that's a little harsh, but I mean, Bible.com, Bible.com slash kids, you can get into the scripture, you can get into it on your phone, you can listen to it. They've got videos there that help you understand it. The kids app is sensational. It's colorful. It gets them into the Bible. You say, I have no Bible knowledge. I have no, I'm so intimidated by the Bible. You will be much less intimidated if you go to those, those sites and just use modern technology to get yourself into the scripture. So uh, I will say to you, as your pastor, uh, I feel guilty at the, the, I should be spending more time in the scripture, and I'm the one who's teaching it to you every weekend, okay? So we can all do better, and those are two great apps uh, to help you do better uh, as people, as families, and all of that. So here's the, here's the scripture for today. It's in Jeremiah, the Old Testament, chapter 29 and verse 11. I would bet money that most of you in this room know this passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and the future. How many of you have heard this before? Yeah, so a good lot of you know this passage of Scripture. It is just so 
positive. It is so encouraging. It has hope all over the place. It's so personal. I know, says God, the plans I have for you. And it feels so personal. And, you know, plans to prosper you, yes. Plans not to harm you, yes, yes. Plans to give you hope and a future, yes, yes, yes. Wave the white handkerchief. That is an amazing verse of Scripture. I mean, people pray this verse of Scripture. People quote it. It's on bumper stickers. It's on greeting cards. It's all over the place. Obviously, because of, I mean, it's just, you can't, you probably can't find a more positive, more hopeful passage in all of Scripture. Um, the problem with the way that we often interpret this scripture, wow, so what, what, what some people do, you know, they say, well, my, my business is not doing well, but God says to me, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you hope in the future, I'm going to get out of this hole in my business. Or I'm sick in body, God is going to heal me, he's going to give me a future, he's going to give me hope, I, he knows the plans he has for me. And that's, that's not bad, I mean, that looks like a good way of approaching the text, it's very positive, it's very hope-filled. But the problem with that is it, it doesn't really interpret, that method is not the way that you would interpret that text if you're going to really read it in its own its own context. So here's what we do. We often go to the Bible uh, looking for hope, looking for comfort, looking for courage, looking for healing, looking for deliverance. I mean, that's not a bad reason to go to the Bible. And when we, when we find a verse of Scripture like that, it becomes something that's very powerful seemingly to us and very, very personal the, the problem with going to the Bible that way, though, is that you may take a text like Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and you may be missing the real meaning of it uh, because you want it to really mean something that it might not mean. Now, I would argue that the real meaning of this text is even more powerful than the way that we typically interpret it. But in order to get there, we have to be prepared to say, well, God, even though I want courage and I want healing and I want deliverance and I want hope when I pick up your word, whatever it's going to say to me, I'm going to accept it and I'm going to respect it and I'm going to read it the way that you want me to read it, you see. And whether, whether our 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 presupposition is some, to get something positive from the Scripture or our presupposition is to attack the Scripture. It's still a presupposition, you see. And when we do that, it can lead us into problems. I've had people who, who have prayed that verse of Scripture and they said, you know, I prayed that and I said, God, you have plans for me. You have hope for me. You'll give me prosperity. You'll give me a future. And nothing at all changed in my life. Why? Is, it, is, it, is God not there? Do I not have enough faith? Why did that not happen? Why does it seem to work for some and it doesn't work for others? What's wrong with me? And I've had Christians who've, who've you know, come to me and they say, I just don't understand. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's me. Maybe it's God. Maybe God isn't even there. Or maybe, just maybe, the real meaning of the text isn't exactly what we want it to be. There's an old preacher's joke 
uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about when a person becomes a Christian, they need to start living a different kind of life. And he talks to different kinds of people, and he says, uh, uh, let him who has been stealing steal no more, but let him work with his hands. And uh, it, the, the Bible wasn't written with all nice punctuation and periods and commas and paragraphs and chapters. It was just written as a sort of a blob of text. And so if you're a thief and you read that, you read that text, let him who has been stealing steal no more, let him work with his hands, you could say, let him who has been stealing steal no more, let him work with his hands. Right, So the, the thief approaches it wanting it to justify his thing. And, but of course, when you read it in context, it's quite obvious <laughs> that that's not what the author intended. Uh, sometimes we do the same thing even if we come at the text with a positive, we're looking for a message that's going to give us hope. We can still make the same mistake. So there's two blunders that we're making with Jeremiah 29 and 11. I've made them. Uh, myself and over years I started to learn what the passage really meant. Um, so we, uh, a presupposition means you're going to the Bible with your own idea. You want it to say something, and that can be dangerous. Whether you're whether you want something positive or you want something negative. And the other problem that we make there is the problem of context, and this is most often the problem that we make with the scripture. So the guy with the blindfold who's got his Bible upside down, who points his finger at a verse, he's, a, he's going to ignore the context. And the context is simply what's around that verse and what's the bigger context there? What's the book about? What's the letter about? Who's hearing it? Who's writing it? This is all context. And when you read any kind of book, you have to appreciate the context. Um, and so those are the two blunders that we make. And the, the, unfortunately, with this text... Uh, we can miss a very, very powerful lesson that's even more powerful, in my view, than the way that we usually interpret it, okay? So let me break this down for you a little bit. The background and the context of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, they help us interpret in an even more meaningful way. Now, Jeremiah is a long, long book. This is a major prophet, as we call him. He's, he's often hard to follow. These prophets wrote in, in imagery sometimes. Sometimes they change their, their tenses and they speak about a future event as if it's a past event. Uh, sometimes they switch their audience. And when you're, when you're in the 21st century and you're reading a book that's some, you know, 26, 2700 years old, you know, the author, Jeremiah, doesn't really care that you're in the 21st century. Uh, it's God's word for us, yes, but he wrote it to an audience that was very, very specific at that time. And this man is writing to the, uh, the, the people in Jerusalem um, who are about to, to face the Babylonian uh, assault, captivity, and exile. And then he is going to write uh, to the exiles themselves as they're taken off into Babylon. So you're talking 6th century B.C. So this is a huge event for these people. 
This is one of the significant events of the Old Testament when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and through a series of waves, several waves of attack, they took out the city of Jerusalem. They took out the temple. They took everything out of the temple and carted it off to Babylon. And the people were captive and exiled in Babylon for a period of 70 years. This is a huge, significant event in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is going to predict it in his book, and then he's going to address the people in Jerusalem as the waves are happening and the attacks are happening, and even afterward, and then he's going to address the people who are in exile. So this is the context of this letter in a broad sense, but when you read the verse, let, let me give you the, just the little verses around it. This is a uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. This, this, this verse 11 that we always quote is part of a letter. And it's a letter, uh, we can see clearly that it is. So Jeremiah 29, verse 1, this is the text of the letter from the prophet Jeremiah, uh, or that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. So he stayed back in Jerusalem even during the waves of attack and, and so on and the exiles being taken to Babylon. This is a letter from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. This thing is going to be sent to Babylon, which is like 600 miles away, uh, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the other people that King Nebuchadnezzar, funny name, but that's the Babylonian king at the time, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And uh, so he says he entrusted the letter to such and such a person, Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, and all these names you can't pronounce. And it goes over to, to Babylon, and he sent it uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar in, uh, sorry, not directly to King Nebuchadnezzar, but to the exiles. And here's the beginning of the letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Huh? I carried? So God is taking responsibility for sending these people off into exile. Interesting. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. So they're in captivity. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. And he's telling them, you're going to stay there is what he's saying. Um, increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Excuse me? I'm supposed to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon? Why should I? I should be delivered from Babylon, shouldn't I? Uh, to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, not for Jerusalem, but for Babylon. Because if it prospers... You too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams, 
or encourage their dreams, they're prophesying lies to you. In my name, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 70 years, they're going to be there for 70 years. That means most of them are going to pass away there. That means if they're around 20 to 30 years old, they are going to die in Babylon. 70 years. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, which is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll bring you back from captivity. I'll gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into the exile. Oh, wow. So now the context is different than what we usually look at it. And in fact, if you back up and you go way back to chapter 25, when Jeremiah is warning the people, you see that this idea that God brought them to the exile, you see why he did it. Because it makes, makes God look very, very mean that he went and plucked these people out of Jerusalem and sent them into exile. But you read even from chapter 25, which is broader context, the word of God came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah in the year of such and such a king. This is just before Nebuchadnezzar would come in. And Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and all those living in Jerusalem. I'm in uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 3. For 23 years, he says, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, 23 years, he says, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. 23 years, long time. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, uh, the prophets to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention they said turn now each of you from your evil ways your evil practices and you can stay in the land the lord gave to you and your fathers forever and ever do not follow other gods do not serve them do not worship them do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made, this is idolatry he's speaking of, then I will not harm you, verse 7, but you did not listen to me. 23 years of preaching, and the people did not listen. That's a, God is very patient. He's giving them 23 years. You did not listen. You have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves because you have not listened. Here comes the Babylonians. So broader context, the people in Jerusalem have blown it big time. They have gotten trapped into the whole 
idea of idolatry that some God is better than Jehovah. Some idol that they cast with their hand is better. He can do it better. She can do it better. Whatever their idols were. And they, they refused to give that up. And they, they worshiped things that they created and ideas that they created rather than worshiping the true God. And for 23 years... God warned them and warned them and warned them, and they said, no, 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 no. I mean, I hope if God were to tell me something for 23 years, after maybe 22 and a half years, I'd be smart enough to wake up. <laughs> but, but I mean, this 23 years, it's a long time. And you read from 25 to 29, and you see this whole thing get unveiled, and the Babylonians come, and God even gives them another chance just before it happens. They still say, uh-uh-uh, Jeremiah, he's threatened with death. His message is very unpopular to a group of people because he's saying this city is going to be sacked and burned. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be like an apocalypse, what's going to happen. And they're like, who's this guy think he is? They threaten him with death. There's a couple of people who believe Jeremiah, so he kind of escapes with his life there. But he tells them this is going to come. You've got a whole slew of false prophets who are saying a completely different message than Jeremiah is. And then you see it happen, and then you see this letter to the exiles where we see the famous passage, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, really makes us look at the verse in a different way. So let me give you some, some little uh, lessons that we get from Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and everything around it. Number one, uh, sin always has a consequence. It always has a result, you see. Back in 25 and verse 3, there you see the huge warning. You've got to change this. If you don't change this, bad things are going to happen to you, Jerusalem. And then in 29 and verse 4, I exiled you into Babylon. He warned them. He said, you're not following God's law. Bad things are going to come. They heard the warning. They continued to do what they wanted to do. And God continued to try and show them grace, and they rebelled, and so God brings them to Babylon. It's a consequence, and sin always has a consequence. It will always catch up with you, always. Sometimes it takes years and years and years, but it will always catch up to you. There's always a consequence to it, and God often lets us experience those consequences because that's how we learn. Uh, he rarely removes them. He rarely uh, pulls them back and says, oh, I won't, I won't uh, allow that to happen to so-and-so. No, usually he'll let you experience the consequences of your sin because that's how you learn. That's how you learn about repentance. That's how you learn about the grace of God. That's how you learn about forgiveness when you go through the ouch. Why is that happening? Well, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes those difficult moments happen because, well, God's trying to get your attention because you, and usually we know. I mean, so often Christians, you know what we do? We waste our time thinking, well, such and such has happened to me. It came out of nowhere, and that must be a result of my sin, I guess. You know, I'm sick because of my sin, or I lost my job because of my sin. What sin? I don't know. Must be some sin somewhere. That's not, usually when we sin, we know we sin. 
Usually we, we evaluate in our minds, okay, if I run this red light, so to speak, if I engage in this kind of behavior, what's it really going to cost me? Am I really going to get caught? Eh, let's see what happens. You know, usually we know. Usually it's not a big surprise. So don't waste your time thinking, oh, every little last thing bad that's happening in my life is a result of sin. No, but you will know, just like the Israelites knew, the people in Jerusalem knew. Hey, if God is warning you for two and a half decades, you probably... He's probably good at warning you today, you know. He probably has put several roadblocks in your way. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't try this. Don't, don't think this. Don't touch that. And we look and we say, ah, I'm going to cross the line anyway. Well, when you do that, there's going to be consequences. God always visits consequences uh, to transgression. There's always that, the, the result of that. Uh, this is this is not the same thing. Like some people say, well, that's what, the, uh, or not the same thing in some ways. So last night, even at youth, we had a discussion, and and one of the youth asked about curses in the Bible, and he said, well, what's that mean? Um, okay, take the word curse and kind of use the word consequence because that's really a good way of a modern understanding of this word curse that we see in the scripture. Some people, they read the word curse in the scripture and they liken it to some sort of magic. No, when we see the word curse, especially used in the Old Testament, the idea is you transgress God's law, there's going to be consequences, okay? So don't get confused with that word curse. It can lead to a lot of problems as well. So number one, sin always has a consequence. Number two, watch out for false messages of instant success, instant prosperity, instant deliverance. You see that these chapters, 27, 28, 29, 26, 25 in Jeremiah, wow, there's a lot of messages that are opposing the message that Jeremiah has. And you, you can see it, it's almost, uh, I mean, it's extreme. All of these different messages that are opposite to what Jeremiah is saying. For example, Jeremiah 27, uh, 9 and 10, he says, Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums, your sorcerers who tell you, you will not serve the king of Babylon they prophesy lies to you. I'm telling you. They're telling you that, oh, no, it's going to be okay. The Babylonians are not coming. You're not going to serve the Babylonians. You're not going to be subjugated to them. Maybe everyone else will, but not you, Jerusalem. You'll be protected. No. Jeremiah says they prophesy lies to you that will only serve to remove you far from the lands. I will banish you, and you will perish. Wow. So he says, watch out. People are good. Your prophets and your soothsayers and your people with all their wise messages, they're going to tell you you're going to get out of this. You're not going to get out of this, Jerusalem. Watch out for this false message. Again, in verse 14 and 15, same thing. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who tell you we will not serve the king. Uh, these are lies. I have not sent them. They're prophesying lies in my name. 
Therefore, I will banish you, and you will perish, both you and the prophets who prophesied to you. Oh, what an unpopular message Jeremiah has. You say, does it end there? No. Chapter 28, verses 2 to 4, you see the same thing. This is what the Lord God Almighty says, the God, uh, or uh, sorry, this is Hananiah speaking in, uh, in uh, chapter 28, verses 2 to 4. Hananiah is a false prophet. And Hananiah will say, uh, this is not going to happen. We're going to break the Babylonians. There's going to be deliverance. There's going to be uh, an overthrowing. So he, he gives this prophecy in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will break the yoke of Babylon within two years. Two years, that's not so bad. I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will bring back to this place Jehoiachin, a son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the other exiles. They're all going to come back. It's only going to take two years. And what does Jeremiah say? Uh-uh-uh. It's not the truth. First, he says, well, may it be so what you're saying, Hananiah. You know, amen, may it be so, brother. Uh, but let me tell you that when a prophet goes and says that, it better be true what they say and what you say is not going to come true, Hananiah. And Hananiah even takes this yoke off of Jeremiah's neck. God had told him to put this yoke, which is like a harness around his neck. And he comes up to, to, uh, to Jeremiah rather dramatically. And he takes the yoke off of his neck. And he breaks it. And he says, this is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It'll only take two years. And he puts this big show on. And then and after that, God tells Hananiah, or sorry, Jeremiah, he says, you go and you tell Hananiah, that false prophet, you tell him this is what God says. You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place, I'll put a yoke of iron on you. Iron was a symbol of the Babylonians. I'll put a yoke of iron on you. This is what the Lord says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will give him control over everything, even the animal kingdom. And he says to Hananiah in this confrontation, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation, this nation, to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to remove you from the earth. Your life is going to be taken, Hananiah. And we're told at the end of the chapter 28, in that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Wow. I mean, this powerful message. Watch out for these false messages, Jerusalem. It is going to take 70 years. You are not going to be delivered before then. It's not going to be instant success, prosperity, and deliverance. It's going to be a long time. Again, in chapter 29, verses 8 and 9, same thing. Do not let the prophets and the diviners, this is in Babylon. They had some of them over there. Don't listen to their dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies in my name. Well, what lies we see later on in the chapter, verse 24, uh, in, again, J uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, you have a prophet there. His name is Shemaiah. And uh, so, so Jeremiah says, you go and you tell this prophet, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I hear you sent letters in your own name 
So you're in Babylon and you sent letters in your own name to all the people in Jerusalem who were still there. You sent them to this person who's the son of the priest. You sent them to the other priest. You said to this person, the Lord has appointed you. You're still there in, Jer in uh, Jerusalem. The Lord has appointed you a uh, priest in place of Jehoiada. You don't need to know who that is, but to be in charge of the house of the Lord. There's still a remnant of the temple there. The Lord has appointed you. You go and you take charge in Jerusalem and things, are, things will be okay. And you should put any madman who acts like a prophet into stocks and neck irons. He's referring backhandedly to Jeremiah. So why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah, who poses as a prophet among you? He has sent this message to us in Babylon saying it's going to take a long time. It's going to take 70 years. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. This is nonsense. But the letter got passed to Jeremiah, and he read it. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I'm at the end of Jeremiah chapter 29. Send this message to all the exiles. This is what the Lord says. This guy, Shemaiah, because he, he, because he prophesied to you, even though I did not send him, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to punish him. He's preached rebellion against me. So you have false message after false message after false message. No, no, no. You're going to get out of this. No, it's only going to take two years. And God says, no, it's going to take 70. A generation is going to pass away there, so you better get used to it. You who are in exile, you better live there. You better have kids. You better have those kids have kids because I'm going to bring them back. So don't listen to false messages about instant success. Can I just tell you, a lot of times, God will withhold instant success, prosperity, deliverance, all this stuff from you because he wants you to learn to trust in him, not to treat him as someone you just press the magic button and you have the magic solution. We often learn through difficulty. We often learn through failure. We often learn through circumstances that are painful. And this leads us to trust in the Lord. And especially if we're, if, if we're experiencing the consequences of our own actions. And again, I'm not saying to you, those of you who are in difficult circumstances, it's always because of sin, but sometimes it is. And when it is, well, don't expect God to instantly deliver you. He may want you to go through some ouch, because then you'll say, I'll, I'll think twice before I do that one again. I have learned that lesson many, many times in my many, many sins, okay, because I've learned to experience the consequences of those sins, and this is what Israel was going through. This is what Jerusalem was going through. You say, man, that is such a discouraging message. I can't, uh, why did I even come here today? This is like doom and gloom. Well, let me tell you, Jeremiah was not well-liked either, but he has a tremendous message of encouragement for these people who have blown it, these people who are in exile. Number one, he says, listen, you're going to be there for a long time. You better, you better learn to live there. Seek the peace, the peace and prosperity of the place. Have kids. Get your sons and your daughters married. Don't think you're going to get a quick escape, A. But here's the next lesson. God will not forget you. Jerusalem, you exiles, 
God will not forget you. Yes, you've blown it. Yes, you'll be here for 70 years, but God will not forget you. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. What does he say? This is what the Lord said. Yes, 70 years after the 70 years, I will come to you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to let you just stay there forever. You're going to have a generation and perhaps a second generation that's going to come out of that place. I will come to you. I will bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. Oh my, the hope that these people would have had by reading that. Because up till then, it's like, we've blown it. We deserve it. For 23 years, they preached to us. We're going to be stuck here for 70 years. We, we know that we, we, these are the consequences for our actions, and yet God is going to bring us back. He's not going to forget us. He's going to bring us back. For them, that would have been a message of tremendous hope, tremendous grace. Can I tell you something? Those of you who maybe you say, yeah, I know I'm in the consequences. God is not going to forget you. He's a God who redeems. He's a God who forgives. He's a God who brings back. He's a God who keeps his promises. He would keep them to these people, and he's going to keep them to you. He will not forget you. And the last lesson, what is true, true prosperity? You know, we talk about prosperity in Christian circles, and it's always financial, or maybe it's health. And that to us, we say, well, that's prosperity. And there are whole theologies that are built on this. If you pray this prayer, if you quote this scripture, one of them is Jeremiah 29, 11, then God will prosper you, God will hear you, etc., etc. I mean, I've worked with so many people who've, who've been disillusioned by that type of theology because it leaves you wanting. You, you, you may get your, your riches. You, you may get your healing. But in the end, that's not true, true prosperity. It's temporary you, your, your healing is eventually going to go because you, you're eventually going to go to be with the Lord. Your prosperity is eventually going to go. You're going to spend it. It's temporary. What is true prosperity according to the scripture? And it's not bad. I'm not saying that, that financial prosperity is bad. I'm not saying that prosperity and health is bad. But what is true and eternal prosperity? It's right there in the text. Then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That, my friends, is prosperity because that never ends. That relationship with God is something that is eternal. It is something that health problems can't take away. It is something that financial problems can't take away. It's something that the you know, consequences of sin problems can't take away. That is prosperous. When you can call upon God with conviction and say, he answers me. He answers me. I know him and he knows me. Come what may. It doesn't matter because I have found the wellspring of life in God. And this, this promise to these people in this exile situation would have been so hope-filled for them because they felt like, well, we're, we're going to, it's all over now. We've lost everything. And he says, no, I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you. I'll bring you back, but you will be able to call on me and I will, I will answer you.
Wow. I mean, if I were God, I would have said, forget about these people. 23 years I wasted my time preaching to these people. I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm not God. I'm so thankful that you're not God, right? But God is so filled with grace. He's so filled with compassion. And here's what he wants, is for us to call upon him with conviction and to know, to know my God knows me. My God will answer me. I have an eternal relationship with him. This is the lesson of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like the band to come back. And you did that song. It fits in perfectly with this message. This is amazing grace. This is what the people who got this letter would have felt. They would have said, God is going to spare us. Even though we're under all of this now, God is going to spare us. He is a God of grace. I don't know what your situation is. Maybe some of you in this room, you say, oh, it's the consequences for my foolishness. I'm living it. I understand this. Maybe for some of you, you say, no. You say, no, I'm not. my life is clean before God. Uh, but there are things in my life that are just squeezing, that are just pushing, and they came out of nowhere. I don't know what your situation is, but can I assure you that God is a God of grace. God is a God who loves you with an everlasting love. If he could come back for these people, then how much more us who live on the other side of the cross. I wonder if there are any of you who are in this room, and, and before this message started, you know, you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a follower of Christ or not. I'm not sure. I come here every week, and I don't know if that does it, or, you know, sometimes I feel something. I don't know if that does it. But, but I want that sense of conviction that I can call upon God, and He will answer me. And He knows me, and I know Him. If you want if you want that and you want to pray a very simple prayer with me, I want to lead you to a place of conviction. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm just going to pray because I think there are one or two or three of you and you say, that's exactly where I'm at. So I'm not even going to, it's between you and the Lord this morning, but I'm going to pray a very simple prayer before we continue and we sing that song one time through. And if you want to pray this prayer after me, maybe out loud if you choose or if you don't choose, that's fine. But the key is the conviction. Listen, it's not, you're not praying to me. You're praying to him who wants to know you and who wants you to be known to him. God, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me for my sin. God, I need your grace in my life. I thank you for Jesus who died to take my place so that I may be forgiven, that I may call upon you, and that you may answer, that I may truly be prosperous today. So God, come into my life, come into my life afresh, that I may know you. In Jesus' name, amen.